Big Breakfast, where we give you a hearty serving of insider tips and business strategies to help fuel your day so you can thrive in the construction industry. Now, here are your hosts, Tip Top Tim Fitch and Brendan Morahan. Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of the Construction Big Breakfast podcast with me, Tip Top Tim Fitch. And today I'm joined by my business colleague, Brendan Morahan, and uh, our valued colleague, so it's a little bit different today. We're going to, uh, after we've had the customary question, uh, which we start with, we're going to be talking to Alain about some of his experiences before he joined Invent and compare and contrast with what he's done since. But first of all, Alain, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Oh, this, is, this is a very good question. Um, I started with the Welsh breakfast, I would say. It's cheese on toast. I think it's universal, but it's probably Welsh, and then with some uh, lemon and toast as well, and normal um, uh, tea, breakfast tea, um, English one. So it was pretty British one, I think. Yeah, that sounds like, that's acceptable. It's passed the quality test. Brendan? <laughs> no, I was back to my uh, par- porridge. Porridge. Raisins stirred in, sliced banana on top, washed down with a couple of cups of coffee. So a uh, favourite start of the day for me, actually, the porridge. Gets me going during the winter months. Yeah, today for me, uh, I've just had a business breakfast with somebody. It's a non-training day, so a low-carb breakfast. It was a, a kipper. The only carb on it was lemon juice, but again, of course, washed down with a few cups of coffee. Set you up for the day. Set you up for the day. So, Alan, just a quick, quick bit of history about how how we came across each other and what you were doing immediately before uh, you joined Invent. Yeah, it's been almost 15 years, I guess, now since I graduated. And then I was basically involved in the construction sector uh, back home for five, six years. That was just before the crisis. My, my back home being where? It was in Syria, actually. So um, doing some quantity surveying works, technical supporting office for construction projects. And then the, the crisis started, so I shifted to the humanitarian. But my background is construction, so I use this capacity, these skills, just to support the internally displaced people at the time and you know all of the things around uh, around uh, the world in the country so i was involved with uh, some charities some uh, uh, international organization the country oxfam gb is one of them um, and then Medea, which is swiss organization and then afterwards i moved to the uk and i thought it's good to link the construction side with the development side so i did international development studies that was in the University of Birmingham, then moved to London, and uh, luckily I was uh, hired by Invent as a consultant, and that's, um, that's how we're, we're in here now. I can remember when you came in for an interview, and you told us, we were asking you about some, what, what, maybe what your commercial experience had been. And you told us a story about a negotiation that you undertook in Syria. Perhaps you could share that because this is what swung it for us. This is a totally unique. If you know, it, it, this is a good contrast, really, with what people might expect or have undertaken commercially in a negotiation in a construction sense in the UK or Canada or Ireland, and what you achieved and how you did it. That's that's right. That negotiation is a part of any any business, I would say. It's different when it comes to the commercial side of the business um, from if you're doing humanitarian side of the business. The sort of negotiation that we're doing is critical, is crucial, 
and the consequences out of these negotiations is maybe saving lives or maybe helping others. So one of uh, one of these stories, this is what I've shared in, in my interview when I was involved with Oxfam GB uh, in Syria. We had actually to do sort of negotiation between different parties uh, during that humanitarian context. So one of the projects I, I remember was in Aleppo was one of the equipments we needed actually to move from from Damascus or from wherever inside Aleppo city, and this to save one of the water pumping station um, because there was lack of electricity, electricity cutoff, and the the city was like with electricity cutoff for over six or seven months. So you need this backup generator to get it inside Aleppo city. So you had to and the city at the time that was two thousand. I recall 2015, if I'm rightly saying that, yeah. Uh, so you had to do negotiation between different parties uh, through like a local, I would say, um, agent or a local organization. And then it took us more than six months. And then afterwards, we managed to, to put the generator in and the water flows and everyone was happy. So it was, was really was that one of the, the, my very proud moments, actually, when, we, when we've seen the water. Just to make sure I've understood, well, not so much me because I know the story, but the, our listeners and viewers. At the time, Aleppo was controlled by a different regime to the rest of Syria. It was divided, actually. Divided. It was divided into like two parties. They are divided. East Aleppo is one of the parties. The, the West Aleppo is with the other party, but the, the, the project location was just at the front line. So the water bombing station that support all of Aleppo with water was just in the in the front confront line. So you have uh, you have to save that location, and you prior to do all of this, you have to do the, all of these negotiations between. So two of your stakeholders were physically in conflict. Yes, and and good point actually for the uh, the outcome of the negotiation with that with with the charity that helped us to do this. We managed to, to do a ceasefire for like few days just to ensure that the convoy is smoothly running inside the city and to install the equipment, which was like one of the, uh, one of, I, I, I call it, this is water for peace, or like this project just stopped the war at that time, even for like just a few days, but was, was good enough to say that the humanitarian work at some point can maybe stop wars and bring, bring parties together. I mean, I've heard the story before, but even now I'm trying to stop my jaw from dropping because that, uh, A, the stakes were very high, the outcome had a massive impact, and in fact, during the implementation, there was peace. That's had right. Otherwise, you could have done it. The, the, the outcome actually was, we were talking at the time about 1.2 million of civilians inside the city, and this project is serving all of them. When I did the report to the donor, which was Canadian donor at the time, we said, okay, uh, our beneficiaries are all of the city. Or we contributed to help, to help. So the impact was very big, but the time that it took to get this project succeed was like a long time relatively with the construction projects that we used to do in here. Yes, I mean, what? What lessons do you think our viewers and listeners could draw from this astounding negotiation, which was around a, a civil engineering project, wasn't it? It was about restoring clean water. 
It's, it's the patience actually, and you need to use also your technical skills, technical background to convince whoever you're sitting with. Like these are the facts, this is the impact of the projects, this is the impact or the consequences if we didn't do the project. So all of these things that were at the table when we were discussing with, uh, with people, and um, um, it's good to use whatever technical capacity that you have to serve your ethical impetus, which is helping others. I think that's the important thing, isn't it? Sometimes people think that they always need to lead right from the very front, but it's about how do you make use of the protocols that exist, the culture that exists, to make sure that you work way through those sorts of situations. Because you go, could go head first and get it terribly wrong and undermine everything that had gone before that. So how do you actually determine who are the right people to play the right card at the right time? Uh, actually, that's very good, good point about not going. <coughs> Sorry, I had a bit of um, cold over the, the, the past weekend, so my voice is not um, probably good. So that, that's right. Um, uh, it was not um, my pure decision at the time, because I was part of the technical team or program team. So there's like country management team who were like in the policies level and with the, with the stakeholder level they were involved with. Um, and we had these discussions, is it the right time to talk to these people or is it the right time to use this card? So there was a lot of discussions around this and um, the more communication that we did in the office at the time, the better result that we, we managed to do actually. Yeah. Um, when you, uh, yeah, what did the deal look like? Did you suddenly sign a bit of paper or was it just, yeah okay, how, how, did, the, how did the thing gel out? For you, was it? You got a. How did the commitment come? Uh, actually, it was a sort of agreement, and even uh, like framework agreement with one of the water authorities, which was the water authority of Aliquota. They need this uh, project because they need. They are one, two, three, and this project will serve this purpose. And then they they send us a proposal or a request or whatever, and then we reviewed it, and we've seen a value of doing this project, and then we came back to see what donor will serve us or will fund us actually or will donate to us to do this project and then after this they do, the rest was just uh, practical steps just to get the project done which is this negotiation which is going to do some tests of the country of the origin of the generator and all of these technical steps and then after this um, it's just uh, we use the telephone just to say guys we're ready now to what does a ceasefire agreement look like it was verbal one no There's a lot of trust. Yeah, yeah. There was some shooting here and there, but the convoy survived. But there was like um, uh, a ceasefire, but not, not written. Like the, the, the situation was, um, we were not in a position, to be honest, to advocate to stop. We were just a small humanitarian body was trying to do his bit. So that was the, the situation, actually. Yeah. So how did you build up the confidence before that convoy start, moved towards Aleppo, that you weren't going to get shelled or shot at? There, there's one of the stories, actually, I didn't usually share it. I, I was not allowed to travel, but as a Syrian citizen, I, I can travel wherever. So that was in my uh, citizenship capacity. I traveled to Aleppo a few days before the project, just to see the situation, and then I went back. So I decided to do this because there is an ethical commitment just to see if the things are like really okay to get this convoy um, 
done. And then I came back and I told my team, not the management, that we were satisfied to do this. Of course, I, I delivered the message to the logistic team who are responsible to do the convoy, and this is how we, we did it. It was one of the yeah, risky moments, but I didn't regret this. And then later on, the management, they knew about this, and they said, okay, that's not okay, but this is like a verbal warning, but don't do it again. Mm -hmm. I said, I'm not sure, but I will try. Because so, yeah. trying to keep, compare and contrast that kind of risk management in terms of sort of health and safety with uh, what it's like in a peaceful country like the UK, it's an unimaginable risk to manage. I mean, everything, you can apply all of the management tools to any other context, but the things with the humanitarian is totally different. Usually, like one of the examples I do, when we, when we talk about any construction project in a built environment, we talk about time, cost, quality. With the humanitarian context, they are totally different. So we're talking in here, at the time it's so pressing element, so it comes first, and then why the quality comes the, the last. And there is some sort of compromising when it comes to the built environment projects. It's like this triangle is, the angles of the triangle, they are equal. But with the humanitarian, the, the time is really, you need to do the project yesterday. So different mentalities, and you have to adapt all of your skills with dealing with these elements just to be fit within that uh, conditions. It's not easy. The risk management element is, uh, is the most important one because you have to secure your safety, the safety of the stuff before delivering the project. And I say again, it's not what, that was not the right decision for me to travel, but I was really driven by, I, I mean the impetus was just to see the situation on the ground. Like, what is it the water situation look like in a city that got no electricity over like few months? So I had to leave the situation over for a few days. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm gonna do this again, if I'm involved in this business in the future, but uh, sometimes you have to take the risk, and this is the same what we do with our business, for instance. What about the funding of these humanitarian issues? I, I was briefly involved in a global humanitarian business on a, a charity on an advisory board capacity. And what struck me was the competition for funding and how particularly the US market is so dominant in this, how you attract funds and how you keep on attracting funds and you get that flow of funds so that you can respond very, very quickly. So you're almost throwing money at something for the reason that you just said, because time is of the essence. How do you then always satisfy those funders that you should keep on receiving funds and maybe getting more funds in the future to keep on doing that great work? I think usually if we're working with, um, like within the context that I was involved in, I was working with a big like global organization, which was Oxfam GB. So they have their traditional funders. Uh, but the, your point is, is just um, spot on, actually, of the competition of the fund between the organizations. And this is the situation even here in the UK with the charities. Mm. Um, I mean, it's the same as any other sector. You need the right people in the right position. You need people that are able to write bids, to write proposals. Yeah. And you need to demonstrate the portfolio of the company in a way that these are the people who, are, who will be delivering this project. So we used to do all sorts of things. Um, at um, the same time, just to be honest with the, with the donors, because a lot of organizations within the, these contexts, donors, they are not able to access to most of these, and they, they're not willing to, uh, obviously, to come and to see the situation. So they trust your reports. 
but they have their ears, they have their mm. eyes, they know what's going on. So you have just to be transparent. And I think all the principles that we are implementing in the construction sectors are applied also to, uh, to the humanitarian sector. Just what be is honest it? with them. But what is the success criteria from your point of view and from theirs? Um, it, if the crisis, like, uh, we, do, we, we used to do some sort of appeal, for instance, with a like, group of organizations. Like, when we, when we are together, like all of the organizations together, applying for fund, it's, it's easier for DEFED or, or the, um, for the Canadian aid or whatever, just to support us. When you do this like, alone, you need to do more effort. Success rate will be higher if you're doing this within a consortium of organizations who are applying for this which is not, uh, not the case in the construction sector. But what are the measures of it? How do you, after an event such as that, measure the success or otherwise of that? The, our internal success, you mean? Well, if I'm a funder, you've spent my money, you've done something, how do you satisfy me that I should keep on funding you? And how do you satisfy yourselves as an organisation that we've done well and you we should keep on going and doing more? Yeah, there is uh, some sort of, what we call it, logical framework which is the, the Bible of the humanitarian projects. This is the deliveries, this is the outcomes, and these are the indicators. So usually what we use to demonstrate to the donors when we finish uh, any project with them, this is the number of beneficiaries, the number of people who, 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 were, who, are, who we, are managed to, we managed to support them. Let's say we promise the different donor to support one million beneficiary within a certain amount of time. So if we manage to do this, the DFED will be more confident to give us more fund. And this is alongside with, with other actually criteria, but mainly we use the indicators to say we managed to do the project within the time frame, within the same number of beneficiaries, within all of these challenges as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so we use this, um, this logical framework indicators just to prove that, okay, we, are, we were successful doing this. So let's move it on to the construction relationship now. I mean, you've referred to a exciting, stroke, scary time of carrying out some infrastructure works. But to me, what it highlights, what we've always said around here, is how important infrastructure is to society, developed or undeveloped. Um, and we find the construction sector quite exciting anyway. But how do you compare and contrast humanitarian type construction with the more controlled construction that takes place in a developed country such as the UK? Yeah, the, 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 the impetus, I, I, I think, is, is different. Um, of course, the two sectors, they are serving good, good purposes. But in the humanitarian sector, you're driven by, I would say, saving lives. So your type of interventions is more about reconstructing things, or is about doing shelters, or converting or transforming existing schools, for instance, into shelters, just to help people to find shelter in the, in the hard days. While in the built environment, um, more or less is driven by commercial purposes, which is very valid purpose as well. And I'm not sure how this is linked with the bigger picture in the, in, of whatever we're doing in this sector. I suppose that's what I was getting at. How does it change the way you conduct construction in the two different environments? Because the product is arguably the same. The logistics clearly will be very different. The environment will be very different. But the actual process will be very similar in many areas. But really, what are the distinctions, the differences that are being particularly interesting? I think it's, it's, it's about to, just to bring people to be um, aware of the bigger picture. So as long as you have everyone is looking at the, the, the utmost goal, which is 
I would say, achieving one million beneficiaries in a year. So everyone will be working just to do this. While in the construction sector, the, the gap that I see in this sector is there is a gap. Or there is, I mean, the bigger picture is not clear for everyone. If you're doing a stadium, for instance, is it to, I mean, to improve the image of the UK if you implement the Olympia Stadium, for instance? So a lot of people who are working in the, I mean, in the, on the ground, actually, they are not linked with that bigger picture. But with the construction sector, like we have, we used to have all of these meetings around, okay, these are the humanitarian principles, and you need to forget that you are an engineer here. You are a humanitarian worker slash engineer. That was the difference. Is that something that commercial business should copy to make sure that people are more clear about why they come to work every morning? I what think the that, is? I think I, I rehearsed, like, this is the, the, there, there is a certain gap that I noticed even back, back in the days when I involved in the construction sector in Syria. I was involved in, uh, in a very big residential, I mean, projects and other sort of commercial projects. I was not able to see the bigger picture, rather than, okay, let's, let's, do, let's get the project done, let's be successful and let's improve the business. That's really interesting because we have obviously do a lot of work on strategy with businesses and that's always the hardest hurdle to overcome in explaining to boards why it's important to have that that purpose clearly articulated. And you've given a very good example there of, of why it was essential for what you had to do in Aleppo. Unfortunately, with a lot of businesses that we, we're seeing here in the construction sector, they have this only this social contribution element of their businesses, and they don't do more than this. And um, I think this is just because it's a mandatory sort of boxes they need to tick when they do it. I'm not, I'm, I'm not attacking all of these businesses, but I'm saying, I'm saying it's a just, um, it's a just gen general observation. But equally, every business is a, a target. They get bombarded with all sorts of charities, local, national, global. How do they make a choice as to which they should support and which they should let pass by? It's, it's, uh, I think it's not easy mission to um, just to appoint like a specific charity just to help. In the UK, as far as I know, there are 160,000 charities, and most of the charities they are under 500k um, annual revenue. Uh, so the competition is very hard, and the, I mean the fake information and false information are so intense. I would say if, if for instance, if the company employees they are interested of helping refugees, for instance, let's focus on list of leading refugee charities, and we take it from there. Mm -hmm. And there are many ways that we can be involved in just to, to support these charities. And you're involved in a particular refugee charity over here in the UK, which is, is quite interesting from what I, little I know of it. Very community-based, which has its added attraction of you actually drawing the local community together anyway. So there's benefit for the community. But I would have thought immense benefit for those families that come into the community. Just do you want to tell us a bit more about that. I think it's for both sides, for the community and yeah. for, the, for the families. The, the, the goal is just to bring refugee families from uh, the countries of the camps to the UK through a community effort. Uh, but at the same time, it's mobilizing the community uh, uh, I mean, capacities together just to, just to organize themselves and then to bring the family. Uh, recently, I was involved, and I'm still involved with uh, a local group in Benghazi, in the southern side of London. So we are 14 of us now, we're trying just to, um, to raise the fund, to raise the awareness, and to bring the family as well. So Adam, when we went to a, um, yeah, we went to an event at the Canadian Embassy uh, 
a few weeks ago, you and I, and at which you won an award. Can I tell our viewers about that? Yeah, I was actually I was surprised to get this award. I was proud, of course, at the same time. This um, this was an event organised by Citizens UK, which is one of the leading charities in the country in terms of empowering the local communities. Uh, so the award that I got uh, was the champion of the year for the for the community sponsorship scheme, uh, the scheme that meant to bring refugees to the country. So I mean, it was more of recognition of sort of voluntary work I did with them over the last three years, which is going to local communities across all of the UK, uh, just to do the awareness about the scheme itself and about the plight of the Syria crisis as well. Um, the competition was hard, so I personally I was not expecting this award. My other colleague, uh, I expected to Eva, who was competing with me, and I was totally happy to get this prize. Um, but okay, this, this will give me more energy just to, to continue uh, doing the awareness. Well, I'm just, right, I just wanted to, because I was there, I listened to all of the nominees and soaked up the whole thing. And there was a couple of amazing sort of coincidences and interesting things. So the first thing was you were nominated by a local group from Devon, in fact it was from Ottery St Mary, I yeah, some of the work I did was, was, was down there, yeah. yeah. And I, I was introduced to your friend who was obviously uh, the leading light down there. And of course, they had this amazing case history of the family that come over and settled in Ottery St Mary. For those that don't know, look up Ottery St Mary on YouTube because it has a very, uh, now it's nowadays, unbelievable tradition on Bonfire Night. I'll leave it at that. You check it out on uh, YouTube. But, I know all Theresa Mary's, I've been there a long time ago, my, my brother lives down in Devon. So that was one interesting thing, it was amazing that you've been down there doing your thing. The other thing of course was that the charity that you've been working for in the UK is an import from Canada, where they... Tell us a little bit about that, because of course this is another parallel which we had, I had no idea of, because we got a Canadian, big strong Canadian connection, it wasn't the first time I've been to the embassy for all sorts of reasons. So just tell us about that, how that charity came out of Canada. That's right. Actually, the scheme itself is, um, or the concept of the scheme came from Canada. And we imported this here in the UK. We're trying to implement similar uh, characteristics of that scheme. Uh, basically, the scheme established in Canada, if I'm, uh, if I'm not wrong, was 40 years ago now. So this scheme is helping communities to bring refugees from all over the world to be resettled in Canada. So what happened in the UK, um, after the, uh, the shocking images of Alain Kurdi, uh, the Syrian boy who washed by the sea, so there was like an, an emotional response by, the, uh, by a lot of charities in here, by the, by the, uh, also by the UK government, just to, to establish this scheme. So it meant to help the Syrian families. Uh, so they, they were looking at like successful examples. They said, okay, let's, let's bring the Canadian uh, sort of scheme because it's it's been a success. So they imported this and they started this. Um, uh, it's good to know that in the coming year the scheme will not be limited to the Syrian families. It's going to be open to any uh, to any other maybe refugees all over the world, which is good. So so the scheme is it's a learning process for the all of the volunteers yeah. within this scheme. But it's also uh, good to say that uh, good lessons are coming uh, from Canada. We're we're taking these lessons.
Yes, and I have to say that that evening for me was uh, a tremendous eye-opener. Uh, a, for the work that this charity was doing, but also the esteem in which you are held by that community uh, was astounding. And of course it was another, another demonstration where we've learned from Canada, because of course R&D tax credit are a Canadian invention, which we, 15 years after they were conceived, we bought the, we didn't, the UK government bought the UK as well. So both on the, on the R&D front and the humanitarian front, we've, we've imported stuff from Canada, which has now been very successful here. So on that positive note, the whole thing's been a positive uplifting experience, mm -hmm. I hope you all agree. Exactly, yeah. um, I'd just like to thank Ella, if you want to follow Ella on Twitter, it's at Ella the Proud. Yes. We'll, we'll put that on the show notes. So, goodbye from Ella. And it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from Tip Top Tip. Invent has a 100% success rate with R&D tax credits, bringing in over 77 million pounds in qualified costs for businesses just like you. We offer a complimentary, confidential review of your business to see where you're leaving money on the table. Contact us at www.invent.com to book a consultation today. Thanks for joining us this week on the Construction Big Breakfast. Make sure to visit our website, www.invent.com, where you can subscribe to the Construction Big Breakfast on all platforms so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a positive rating. Or if you'd simply share it with a friend, that would help us out too. Be sure to tune in for our next episode.